First, a gentle warning. This podcast can be a hard listen at times and includes themes of violence, mental distress and racism. It's something you might need to consider before listening. Early on Sunday, 3rd of May 2015, Police Scotland's control room starts to receive calls. Hello, there's a man with a knife, a black man on Hayfield Road in Kirkcaldy. Police arrive at the scene and within minutes, Sheikh Bayo is down on the ground. After being restrained by up to six officers, he stops breathing. Many of the details of what happened that morning are in dispute. His devastated family are still searching for answers. They want to know what role race played in Sheku's death. They claim he is Scotland's George Floyd. Sheku died here in Scotland and I am fighting, we as a family are fighting for changes to happen in Scotland. No family should suffer the way that we are suffering. Police refute this. Now a public inquiry, launched in May 2022, is trying to find out what really happened. Its purpose is to seek to ascertain the truth and to that purpose, I am fully committed. Welcome to Shaker Bio, The Inquiry, a podcast series from The Ferret. Episode 6, Matters of the Heart. I'm Karen Goodwin, co-editor and journalist for The Ferret. And I'm Tomiwa Fullerinshaw, a freelance writer and editor. Welcome back to our podcast, looking at the evidence heard so far in the public inquiry into the death of Sheku Bayou. If you've not listened to the first five episodes, you can go back and do that now at theferret.scot or search for Sheku Bayou The Inquiry, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is a pivotal one. It summarises what the experts have told The Inquiry about the cause of Sheku Bayou's death. His family and friends believe that he was killed as a result of the police restraint. Police, meanwhile, have always denied wrongdoing. But what does the post-mortem evidence show? Much of that is concerned with matters of the heart. Physiologically speaking, the human heart is the body's engine room, pumping blood and oxygen around the body. It contracts with a regular rhythm and a steady beat from the second we are born to the moment we die. That mechanism runs on repeat, contracting, pumping, carrying, returning, until, sometimes suddenly, it stops. Sheku Bayou slipped out of consciousness on the morning of Sunday, the 3rd of May, 2015 after he'd been restrained by police for about eight minutes. He went into cardiac arrest in the ambulance. In Kirkcaldy's Victoria Hospital, the medical team spent more than an hour attempting to resuscitate him and restart his heart. But ultimately, he was pronounced dead at 9.04 in the morning. And so it is that at 2pm on Monday the 4th of May 2015, Forensic pathologists Dr. Kerry-Ann Shearer and Dr. Ralph Behader found themselves standing in front of Sheku Bayo's body at Edinburgh's city mortuary. 
this post-mortem was to be double doctored, as is the case with all suspicious deaths. His family back in Fife didn't know Sheku was there. On Sunday evening, they had asked to identify Sheku's body when his mother had arrived from London. They didn't know at this point that a post-mortem was taking place without them first identifying the body. But in fact, it's normal for post-mortems to be carried out at this timescale, Dr Shearer told the inquiry when she gave evidence in the most recent hearing. Acting quickly is important for a pathologist. From my point of view, I would much prefer to get to do the post-mortem, to do the external examination, the internal examination, and, and more specifically, get my samples. Um, because when you're taking, when I was talking about histology, so little bits of tissue, the tissue begins to break down very quickly. And if the body's left for a reasonable period of time, it can actually alter what I can see down, mm-hmm. down the microscope. So um, we would always prefer to do the post-mortem as quickly as possible because we may it may affect how we are able to describe things. It may affect the information that we can give about cause of death. That Monday afternoon, Sheku's identity was confirmed by John Ferguson from the Police Investigations and Review Commissioner, Park, and Peter Grady of the Major Investigations Team, MIT, who were at the hospital with Sheku. Dr Shearer told the inquiry she assumed the family was too upset to attend. The doctors then got to work quickly and methodically, looking to gather as much information as possible about the cause of death. Dr Shearer explained the process. What we do initially is a very detailed external examination. So we will we will look at every part of, of the body very, very carefully, documenting anything that we're seeing. Things like tattoos and scars we will look for again because that can be an indicator of who, who the, the patient may be. And after that, we will look in great detail for any injuries that are present externally, uh, down to tiny little things that might be a, a, a point one of a of a centimeter everything that's on the body will will be documented we will then look internally and so we will look at all of the organs and all of the the rib cage inside the head and what we're basically looking for is a reason for their death i.e is it natural do they have for example heart disease and do they have pneumonia do they have anything that we can explain why they have died um, suddenly Everything that the doctors noticed is recorded on the post-mortem notes. Three circular scars on the right of the forehead, five on the cheek, an abrasion directly above the left eyebrow, superficial lacerations in the mouth, a bruise on the left temple, cuts and lacerations to his trunk. There are abrasions and bruising to upper and lower legs, consistent with baton strikes. Bruising to the wrists is consistent with the use of handcuffs. A collection of petechial haemorrhages, tiny burst blood vessels in the eyes that can be seen when there is asphyxia or a lack of oxygen supply are noted. Tissue samples and blood and urine was also taken, bagged and labelled, ready to be sent to the lab. But the cause of death was still not obvious. There is no stab wound or gunshot here, no clear signs of disease. Dr Sheeran notes the initial conclusion. Unascertained pending investigation. Back at Kirkcaldy Police Station, officers were updated on the initial results at a meeting the following day. But no one contacted Sheku's family. Colette Bell, his partner, remembers the family found out the post-mortem had already taken place while at the office of their lawyer, Amar Anwar, on Tuesday the 5th of May. 
After that, there was a massive ruckus, she told the inquiry team in a statement. She remembers being distraught, angry and confused. Though some of the family, including his sister Caddy Johnson, later went to see his body in the city mortuary, Colette didn't go, worried about seeing him with stitches. She didn't want to remember him that way. But back in the lab, the initial post-mortem report filed, there was still more work for Dr Shearer to do. In coming weeks, she will be sent back the samples, tiny layers of tissue placed onto a slide to be examined under a microscope. These will offer up clues to Shaco's death. They include samples from his heart. Here's what she told the inquiry about its significance. The heart's a muscle. It's made up of muscle cells. Um, and I can look at uh, sections of the heart down the microscope and look at those muscle cells, look if there's any damage to them, um, either acutely or chronically, if there's any scarring or anything like that, which can maybe give me an idea of a, de- a disease process that may be happening um, in the patient and potentially a, a cause of death. After looking at both the heart in its entirety and at those samples, she had one clear finding. We could give you a lot of detail here, but to summarise, everything was completely normal. There was no heart disease, no congenital abnormalities. The heart, Dr Shearer said, was completely as she would expect a normal heart to look. So what caused it to stop? The family waited for answers. The weeks ticked on. On the 7th of June, they held the funeral. Hundreds of people processed from Hayfield Road and stopped outside the police station, where a two-minute silence was held. Some chanted, We want answers. We want justice. It wasn't until the 12th of June that the toxicology report was completed and sent to the forensic pathologists carrying out the post-mortem. The test showed that Sheku had taken drugs that night. To put that in context, one in 11 people across the UK, aged 16 to 59, report taking illicit drugs in the past year, according to the latest Office of National Statistics report. That's about 3 million adults and is probably an underestimation. His blood and urine were positive for MDMA, the main ingredient of ecstasy. The toxicologist also picked up alpha-PVP, a synthetic stimulant also known as flaca or bath salts. That's much more commonly found in the US and it's associated with sometimes out-of-character behaviours. Several experts told the inquiry about the impact these drugs could have on both Sheku's physical and mental state that night. Joining the inquiry by video link, expert psychiatrist Dr Morris Lipsitch confirmed it was rare for MDMA or ecstasy to lead to paranoia. But it's a different matter with alpha-PVP. It's uh, like a very, very potent form of amphetamine. And we know that amphetamine has the potential to cause extreme paranoia fairly quickly. That's to say within 20 minutes, 45 minutes, it, it acts quickly. It doesn't do that to everybody, uh, but in a person who happens to be susceptible, then there can be a a paranoid reaction which can be extreme. And that's what I think happened to Mr. Bio. The adverse psychiatric effect, as I mentioned, is suspicion and moving into paranoia, intense fear that other people want to harm you. If you remember from earlier evidence, 
Sheku left his friend Martin's in the early hours of the morning because he thought his friends were talking about him. Later, his suspicions ramped up and he accused his friend Zahid of being an undercover CID officer and attacked him. In November 2015, Park commissioned a report from Dr Lipsidge. The following January, he offered a psychiatric diagnosis of Sheku. Psychostimulant intoxication leading to psychosis. Dr Lipsidge described physical symptoms experienced in this state, along with psychiatric ones. As well as a release of dopamine, he wrote, there would also have been a release of adrenaline, which can raise the heart rate and blood pressure. That causes strain on the heart and makes it vulnerable. There's another term that's sometimes used, especially by police, for this kind of presentation. Excited delirium. We've come across it before. It's been used in the US and implicated in some high-profile deaths in custody, such as Daniel Prude, an unarmed black man who died in the New York City of Rochester in 2020 after police put a hood over his head and held him down. He had been suffering a mental health episode and had been wandering the streets naked after taking hallucinogenic PCP or angel dust. But the term has been deeply contentious and is now widely discredited. Many medical professionals say there's no pathological evidence to support it. Some campaigners argue excited delirium is a highly racialized term, used to cover up for the use of police force during the restraint of black people. But there are those who still argue it's a real condition. So what do the expert witnesses involved in this case think about the term excited delirium? Dr Leipzig has written or co-written two journal articles critiquing the term, most recently in 2022. In that article, he noted that while it was generally accepted that George Floyd died from suffocation, one pathologist giving evidence at the trial of police officer Derek Chauvin suggested that Floyd died of excited delirium rather than from restraint. The jury did not agree and found Chauvin guilty. Guidance on the use of the term has since changed in the States, Dr Leipzig noted, steering pathologists away from its use. Dr Lipsidge was also one of a number of experts who advised joint guidance from the UK Forensic Science Regulator and the Royal College of Pathologists, published in 2020, stating that excited delirium should not be regarded as a cause of death. Three years previously, that was also a recommendation made by Dame Ailish Angelini in her review of deaths in police custody in the UK. Lipsidge claims both excited delirium and the term which has generally replaced it, acute behavioural disorder or ABD, are infused with racial stereotyping. Within the definition of so-called excited delirium, there were two terms that were regarded and are regarded as racialized. One is the use of the term superhuman strength as a characteristic of excited delirium or acute behavioral disturbance, superhuman strength, and the other is impervious to pain. And in consultation with the community and other stakeholders, it was felt that those two terms really resonated with the institution of slavery. That's to say, severe measures to control slaves were often justified by the use of the terms, uh oh, they don't feel pain the way white people do, or we have to control them with chains because they have superhuman strength. 
And those true expressions appear repeatedly in the definition of excited delirium and indeed of acute behavioural disturbance. You might remember the evidence given by some of the police officers during the first hearing. Some described the way Sheku was unaffected by CS and Pavaspray and noted his superhuman strength, making him capable of lifting three officers off the ground during restraint. Dr Lipsidge also has another theory about the way restraint precedes the deaths of black men in custody. Sometimes the appearance of somebody in a uniform exacerbates a, a paranoid state, whereas a person appearing as a civilian might be potentially reassuring. I know that Scotland has a more tolerant reputation than England when it comes to racial prejudice, but it's possible that Mr. Bio had experienced discrimination and that might have been a factor when he was approached by white police officers. And we know that Sheku had negative experiences with the police. In her statement to Perk on the 8th of May 2015, his partner Colette Bell told police, Sheku felt police were corrupt and could not be trusted. He felt police would all look out for each other, she said. Sheku was uncomfortable, according to Colette, with the view that police could be trusted to deal with a confrontation fairly. As a teenager in London, he was stopped by the police. His view? It was simply because he was black. Dr Lipsidge says black men struggle in restraint because they're afraid of real and terrifying consequences. Even in the absence of paranoia, uh, one comes across people who, this is well documented in the United States, people who are not psychologically disturbed, but who are approached by the police. I'm talking about black people now, and who then are so terrified of the police that a life and death struggle ensues. And that's to do with a previous experience of, uh, of racism. Yet, despite updated guidance by professional bodies, several experts involved in the Sheku Bayou case continue to advocate for use of the term. One is Dr. Stephen Karch, an extremely experienced consultant pathologist who worked in the States for many years. His take is very different. In his statement to the inquiry, he claimed he had experience in the examination of the hearts of drug users who die of excited delirium. He says that the possibility of that sounds very likely in this case. Dr. Karch was also commissioned by Perk to review the post-mortem in November 2015. He claimed to have found heart abnormalities that were overlooked at the original autopsy and a thickening of the blood vessels which suggested Shaky was a chronic drug user. He suggested it was the drugs that killed him and that the restraint was not significant. Karch's analysis is emphatically disputed by Dr Shearer, who carried out the post-mortem. This is what she told the inquiry when asked about Dr Karch's findings. He's basically saying he's seeing changes uh, down the microscope that show evidence of, of chronic drugs misuse. Um, that is one of the reasons that we did such a detailed um, examination of the heart, um, as I detailed yesterday. The heart histology I took was reviewed by myself, by Dr Beheder, the second doctor on this case, 
by the other um, three forensic pathologists in my department um, and was also reviewed by um, other witnesses, um, including a, a professor of cardiac pathology, uh, uh, Professor Mary Shepherd, and none of us have seen what Dr. Karch has has seen. So I'm I'm not sure what he what he's looking at, but um, I categorically disagree that there's any chronic changes in the heart. In a statement provided to the inquiry, Professor Mary Shepherd stated categorically that Sheku's heart showed no abnormalities asserting that she had studied 7,000 hearts in the course of her work. Part of the problem with assessing the impact of illicit drugs on someone is the very fact that they are unregulated means that researchers are often operating largely in the dark. As leading toxicologist Professor Michael Edelston tells the inquiry, if people don't become unwell and don't require intervention, there are no records of what they have taken. Research studies show that the potential fatal range of drugs is vast. For alpha-PVP, this is said to be between 1.1 and 20,000 micrograms per litre of blood. The reading found in Shaker's blood was 70 micrograms, which, says Professor Edelston, while very much at the lower end of that range, is not inconsistent with a fatal dose. Different people respond to drugs in different ways, he tells the inquiry. And what's important in ascertaining whether they may have been a cause of death is the context and the situations people who are intoxicated find themselves in. Sometimes we have people who are left alone in the room and no one touches them and they're found dead in the room. And those concentrations might tell us that that drug range by itself with that person just sitting there calmly like I'm doing now is enough to kill you. Or it might say that, that person was very, very sensitive and for some reason we don't understand yet that drug interacted badly with that person. Mr. Bayer was not in a calm situation, he was also restrained. It's possible because of the restraint, he died at a lower dose than would have been expected if he hadn't been restrained. And here we find ourselves at the heart of the matter. If police had dealt differently with Sheku that morning, had found another way to approach him or implemented the restraint more carefully, could that have made a difference? Professor Edelston, who is also a clinician and sees patients in psychosis, either due to drug intoxication or mental ill health, claims that restraint is by its very nature dangerous. So where it cannot be avoided because the person is a danger to themselves or others, it needs to be approached with extreme caution. In the clinical setting of a hospital, Professor Edelston would try to calm patients using traditional de-escalation techniques. But where that isn't possible, he would administer drugs like benzodiazepines to chemically calm people and reduce risk of respiratory issues or cardiac arrest, he says. From his perspective, from the start of Shaker's restraint, the outcome did not look good. Here's Roddy Dunlop, KC, the lawyer representing the Scottish Police Federation, questioning him after his evidence session. What is it that makes the prognosis poor at that point in time? Because he's not understanding what's going on. He's fighting against the restraint. And that restraint, that is going to go on until he's exhausted. And that puts him at risk of not being able to breathe properly and his heart not properly and die from it. If that restraint had been started and there had been a plan, an availability of a paramedic or a doctor able to provide drugs within a few minutes, then the prognosis would have been different. It would have been better. I'm not sure how good it would have been. Doing this without that plan in place, the prognosis was very poor. Police maintain criticism of them is unwarranted. 
Forensic pathologist Dr Nathaniel Carey is another expert who has been giving evidence. His past high-profile cases include the Alexander Litvinenko poisoning and the sewing murders of schoolgirls Holly and Jessica. He was also commissioned to look at the impact of crush asphyxia during the Hillsborough football stadium disaster. And he claimed the most significant factor in Sheku's death was the restraint. He was asked by the inquiry team if his opinion could be biased. Back in May 2015, his expertise in the cause of death was first requested by biofamily lawyer Amar Anwar. But Dr Carey insisted this fear was unfounded. In fact, reviewing the slides, photos and findings of the original post-mortem by Drs Shearer and Buheder, he found no conflict of opinion and he found no underlying issues with the heart. He too agreed that the abrasions on Sheku's trunk, injuries on his wrists from the handcuffs and the small burst blood vessels in his eyes were consistent with a significant amount of force being used during restraint. Can you tell us a little bit about petechial haemorrhages? Yeah, basically there are little bleeds into the skin of the face, particularly the linings of the eyes, but they can occur more extensively in the skin of the face. And they're essentially due to blood being able to get into the face, but not so easily out again. So you see them in crush asphyxia type deaths because the blood literally can't get out of the face and the head and back into the chest because the chest is squeezed so hard. This has been denied by officers involved who gave evidence that minimal force was used. Back in June 2015, Dr Shearer found the exact impact of restraint difficult to know for sure, but she could not rule it out. Neither could she rule out the role drugs played. Taking everything into consideration, she wrote, death here was sudden in nature. She found there was no evidence of natural disease that would account for death. She noted that the toxicology findings for MDMA and alpha-PVP could potentially have caused sudden death at any time due to a fatal cardiac arrhythmia. But she recognised that restraint in itself could be a cause or contributing factor in some deaths, and that as Shaker was restrained at the time he stopped breathing, his body may have been deprived of oxygen. This was supported by the evidence for particular haemorrhages, that's those little burst blood vessels in his eyes. It cannot be completely excluded that restraint has also had a role to play in death here, she said. The revised cause of death was recorded on the final version of the post-mortem. Sudden death in a man intoxicated by MDMA and alpha-PVP whilst being restrained. But there's a postscript. On request, Sheku's blood was later tested for sickle cell. Sickle cell disease is a range of conditions which includes sickle cell anemia. That means the blood is chronically low in oxygen, leading to pain increasing the risk of stroke and causing longer-term damage to nerves and organs. Sheku didn't have sickle cell disease, but like one in four West Africans and one in ten Afro-Caribbeans, he was born with sickle cell trait, a gene passed on by one of his parents. For most fit and healthy people, this will cause no issues and they will not go on to develop sickle cell disease. But there has been some evidence that it has led to death in the face of extreme exertion, such as that of military recruits training in fierce heat. In a follow-up report, Dr Elizabeth Sawyer claimed that Sheku's exertion in the midst of his psychosis could have led to his death. Slides show evidence that there was some sickling of his red blood cells, particularly in the liver and lungs. 
That means they change shape and can block the organs from receiving oxygen. Further experts were called in, including Professor Sebastian Lucas, one of the most experienced in the UK in terms of sickle cell cases, including those who had died in custody. At first he agreed that Dr Sawyer might be right, but he later claimed he had not been made aware of the level of force used in the restraint, and he changed his mind. Sickle cell trait, he said, was only a contributing factor in Sheku's death, not its cause. He was asked by junior counsel Laura Thompson about the impact. Could taking drugs have led to the sickling seen under the microscope, she asked. Could the fight with Zahid? Chasing cars? No, none of these would have had any impact, claimed Lucas. We then heard evidence about the, the restraint. This involved Mr. Bayer being struck to the head with a baton two or three times, yeah. struck to the body or the arms another two or three times. He was then taken to the ground in what has been described as both a shoulder charge yeah. and a bear hug. He was brought to the ground quickly, where he was restrained by several officers. Yeah. He struggled against the restraint, um, did a press-up to get the officers off him. We've heard some evidence um, that one officer was uh, lying across his upper back. Uh, The officer in question was 25 stone in in weight. He was, in the course of the restraint, handcuffed to the front and leg restraints were applied to stop him from kicking out. He then became unconscious and subsequently stopped breathing. Would you expect a restraint such as the one that I've described to you to cause sickling? It could. Dr Shearer agreed. Were she to revisit the post-mortem, she said, sickle cell trait would be on part two of the death certificate, a contributory factor, but not a cause. It was not at the heart of what happened. The human heart, Professor Lucas told the inquiry in his evidence, is the last thing that finally gives up when someone is dying. It can carry on beating until the bitter end, he said. But eventually, Sheikh's heart stopped. More than eight years on, the search for definitive answers about what led to that untimely conclusion continues. On the 28th of August, the inquiry will reconvene, hearing from more senior police about how decisions made in the aftermath of Sheku's death have impacted on that search. There's a lot to catch up on, but we've summarised everything you need to know so far. Find all six episodes of Sheku Bio, The Inquiry, presented by me, Karen Goodwin, and me, Tomiwa Fullerinshaw, at theferret.scot, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Ferret is an investigative co-op run by and for its members, We believe good journalism changes things. To make this podcast, we've spent hours listening to all of the evidence so that we can summarise it for you, our listeners. And we need your support to do more. Join us at theferret.scot forward slash subscribe and get three months free with the code PODCASTOFFER. This podcast was written and produced by Karen Goodwin. Research by Tomiwa Fullerinshaw. Recording, editing and sound design by Helena Rafai. Original music by Alan Bryden. <laughs>